Hi, this is Better Red Than Dead, a literature podcast from a left perspective. I'm Megan. I'm Tristan. I'm Katie. And today we are going to be talking about Journal of the Plague Year, which is Daniel Defoe's 1722 historical novel thing about the 1665 Great Plague of London, the last major outbreak of bubonic plague in England. So even though it may seem obvious, Tristan, why Journal of the Plague Year? Um, yeah, t- uh, two reasons. So one, as you as you both know, and I think a lot of our listeners, um, I am a Defoe stan. Um, people who listen to our Robinson Crusoe episode will know that I often find him absolutely enraging. Like, I mean, he's a gung-ho colonialist and capitalist. But he is also a major innovator in this form that became the English novel. Uh, and even when his politics suck, which they they do a lot, he's idios- idiosyncratic and ambivalent and paradoxical enough to let us say some really interesting things about him and the conceptual problems of modernity that occupy him, um, even if his answers are often bad. <laughs> and, and I think we see a lot of that here. Um, this is a text that has one foot in a pre-modern and the- uh, theological paradigm of explaining the world. But it really doesn't want to stay there. It's invested in working out a scientific account of contagion and public health in ways that feel very modern to me, actually. And the second reason is, uh, yeah, the way we live now, <laughs> um, like right, right in the middle of the COVID-19 pandemic. And while a lot of people might think it's morbid or weird to read Journal of the Plague Year, um, and you know, I, I sort of understand where they might be coming from. I often think that doing some historical digging helps me through crises, um, you know, just like well, thinking of what we always say is if this is a problem that research can solve, well, <laughs> yes. this is a problem that I can take. That's right. And of course, like the research needed at this moment is digging into the 18th yep, century. Of course. This is a problem that research can't solve at all, but I'm going to do it anyway. That's right. Yeah. And just, you know, thinking about like affinities and disconnects between the present and the past. Um and, you know, we'll talk about this, but I, I think it's fascinating to look at an urban novel that long predates Victorian capitalist ideology that I think characterizes a lot of how we think about what the English novel's relationship to the city is um, and in ways that are surprising and I think refreshing. Sort of, um, it, it, I think, you know, looking at this and looking at things from this era helped to give some lie to uh, capital's perpetual claim about how it's like natural or like it's like, hum- you know, embedded in human nature or something like that. Yeah. Absolutely. Katie, why did you get on board for this? Uh, I just show up here and I read what you tell me to. (laughs) (laughs) No, I'm just kidding. Uh, Okay, here's the thing. I am too happy right now. (laughs) I'm in too good of a mood. I am too hopeful. My serotonin and norepinephrine are too high, uh, and it's creating an artificial type of euphoria that has distracted me from the realities of our current time. And so what I wanted to do is hop in this little time machine here and take a ride way back to the 17th century so I can actually get depressed about plagues like I ought to. (laughs) Yeah. So, folks, that wasn't. That that wasn't true. I wasn't being sincere. <laughs> Say what? <laughs> I apologize. No, the real reason I wanted to read this, I so time's a flat circle, as as we know from every time I do these, why I wanted to read these things. Because what I actually want to do is say uh, why I'm glad I read it. Um, <laughs> and the reasons are 
encapsulated thusly. And I'm not going to provide any additional explanation for these things, but I think that we'll be able to sort of work through them as we proceed through the episode. So here they are in no particular order. Number one, naked religious dudes. <laughs> they are I said dudes with the S on the end because there are more than one. <laughs> For mm-hmm. sure. Foolproof methods of determining who is sick that are mm-hmm. useful to the present day. For instance, if you see somebody who you think is sick and you scream, hey, are you sick at them? <laughs> you can know whether or not they are sick. Yes. Uh, number three, it's the 18th century in uh, in Great Britain, and I know that's uh, historically inaccurate, but I can't right now. Everything is named like Floppington on Featherbottom in this. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's the place names are great, and even in London today, it's like um, I, I was talking to Megan a little bit about this. It's like Saint Martin in the Fields, and it's like, what the fuck are you talking about? This is a dumbass name for a church that's like the <laughs> one side of Trafalgar Square. It's like, oh right, because like a thousand years ago, when this parish was named, oh, it was in the middle of a field, and it's Saint Martin, so we'll call it Saint Martin in the Fields. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, the last time I was in a field was probably freshman year of college when I got drunk and ran across one. And so <laughs> and so every time that would come up in the book, I would think of like a wasted dude named Martin who had done some <laughs> sort of saintly act. It just, you know, uh, yeah. yep. there, there are some just some other reasons, too, that that I think bear digging into here. Uh, Defoe has a really interesting sense of humor. Tristan, as I'm sure you'll get into, mm-hmm. like he likes to tell a lot of hilarious stories that involve people accidentally maybe getting thrown into piles of corpses. <laughs> LOL. Or throwing themselves into piles of corpses because they don't want to live anymore and then being like, hey, is there a guy in there? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's fun- funny. It's it's funny. comic. Comedy relief. Yeah. It lightens the mood. The other thing, I think I'll probably end here because there's just so much. Okay, so we have the STEM fields, 18th century STEM. And <laughs> yes. we all we all know how I feel about about STEM. It's bad and you should never do it and I'm going on the record. Mm-hmm. But we so so but it, I think there's such something charming about the 18th century or 7 what fuck what are we in the 17th century? What what We're century? in Seven, both. It's, yeah, the, it's the 18th about. century doing the 17th century, yeah. Oh boy, foot in both worlds. But the the 17th century, the account of 17th century medicine is absolutely fantastic. We've really got a lot of evidence-based solutions here uh, involving poultices and poking people until mm-hmm. they can't stand it. Mm-hmm. It's basically like everyone is Dr. Bronner or Dr. <laughs> Phil kind of doctor. <laughs> yeah. This is like pretty much all we get. And relatedly, all the flim-flam dudes. Oh, all yeah. The flim-flam. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. All the quacks. Yeah. Quacks and oh. Malta bags, which is one of my favorite words. <laughs> oh, yeah. uh, but in conclusion, data analytics. We get so many charts in this fucking yes, thing. Yes, we do. Mm-hmm. And that's how you know that it's for real. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I like I wanted to read this initially because of present circumstances, and also because like I have a certain smugness for being like a 20th century studies person who can nonetheless handle an 18th century novel without committing suicide. So I feel quite like I I really like to get a lot of ego out of that. Brava. Brava. It's your fault. I mean, it's not like, Oh, I just took this on of my own accord. Um, 
And for two other reasons too, which is I, you know, play playfully got a ebook of the Decameron that I was like, this is how motherfucking long I am. <laughs> this is out of the question. And then I also started the book called The Plague, and I was like, oh, I, I forgot something important, which is that I hate Camus. So <laughs> that was also thrown away in a fit of pique. But in general, like I love a book where nothing happens, meaning like there's that it, that it's plotless, like uh, has a different kind of tension. But in this book, everything is constantly happening, mm-hmm. and that's what means it has no room for plot. Like that's that's a very different version of it's not that nothing is happening; it's that everything is happening. So we can't have a narrative because it's all happening simultaneously. That would be a cool tattoo if you got it's all happening, maybe like on your forearm or something. Like just kind of <laughs> it's all happening. There. Yeah. Like, um, like, like every everything is happening. Yeah, that's a certainly some place where everyone could read it. Absolutely <laughs> yeah. correct. Yeah. <laughs> and my students wouldn't be like, what the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> okay, so right. It's operating constantly at this level of like high tension, which is really interesting. I also wanted Tristan to give me a free lesson on plague deets, and I wanted Katie to give me a free lesson on religion. That's why why both of you, I know that this is like (laughs) a free lesson that I didn't even ask for. Jesus saves. (laughs) That's right. Um, I'm also always down for like extremely grody details about the human body. So like I'm here for the boils and the boobos and the grain green and other kinds of rot. Mm -hmm. Uh, I enjoy weird medical hocus pocus. So I was interested to see what kind of bananas ass shit the doctors thought might work to treat the plague. Although they didn't actually seem quite as remote from our current practice as I thought they like, there are some moments where I'm like, Oh, I guess that's what I'm doing right now. (laughs) Defoe, for example, thinks that the breath carries the plague, which is right. Mm -hmm. Uh, He also thinks the plague is worse in summer because of vermin. That's also right. Uh, mm-hmm. So I really did find much of that surprising, given that it's like a hundred years before germ theory. Yeah, no, it is. It, it, I mean, they don't they don't quite know what's causing it yet, but like they have a better sense of like epidemiology, despite that, than I would have thought. You know, right? The public health aspect squares up more with our present outlooks than I thought it would. The epidemiological, like. That's right. But like the disease, the how the disease operates is still a little like miasma and the humors yeah. and whatever kind of bullshit they actually yeah, thought. Exactly. Wait, Katie, what were you going to say? Oh, I was just going to say that if you smelled somebody's breath in the 18th century or 17th century, you would have thought it carried the plague too. But I'm. Hey, that's true. <laughs> yeah, that's good. Yeah, that's. Just, I mean, bad air. It's like with the amount of like horse shit and human shit that's like just <laughs> everywhere constantly, and no one bathing. How would you know if a smell was bad or not? Right. Like, <laughs> yeah. Um. So today we're going to be talking about religion and its place in this novel. We're going to be talking about class, poverty, and physical space, and we're going to be talking about genre and the historical novel. Uh, so, Tristan, will you tell us the summary or what happens here or why it just goes from death to death? I would be glad to. It's, it'll be a, it'll be a cheery, uh, cheery time, <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. but uh, not gross at all. 
and yeah, so I actually I wanted to do less of a plot summary today than we typically give because um, sort of as Megan indicated, journal to plug year doesn't work that way. And I think you're right. It is like kind of an excess of stuff happening. Like there's not that space for the narrative of the individual because the public event is so massive and so constant. Like so I, instead, it, you know, I'll just kind of talk a little bit about what characterizes this novel and some of, the, I think, the important themes. Um, one thing to note, Journal of the Play Year is quite journalistic, as you might gather from the, the name. Um, you know, Defoe is plunging into the weekly bills of mortality and other public documents from the era, uh, plus eyewitness accounts, both fictional and, and apparently real, um, and kind of constructing a general picture of London 1665 from that. And, and like one question I have for you guys that, you know, I think we'll get to and that a lot of scholars have debated is whether we should really even call this a novel or maybe think of it rather as like a fictionalized history or even a piece of journalism. And yeah, I mean, so one thing to say, we should remember that 1722 is very early in the history of the English novel. Um, I think claims like this are kind of absurd, but Robinson Crusoe has sometimes been regarded as, quote, the first English novel. Um, and it was published, you know, Defoe writes that in 1719. So sure, if that's true, the genre is three years old when <laughs> Defoe is writing the journal of the plague year. And then we said a lot of things that we look for in the novel, like, you know, that the famous like focus on interior psychology, uh, a recognizable novelistic plot arc. All of that is sort of just coming into being. No one really knows what the fuck it is yet. So yeah, again, instead of trying to summarize a narrative, I'll just kind of talk about like sort of general general features of this story, um, and and also the event itself, the, the 1665 plague. So as Megan noted at the opening, um, the 1665 Great Plague of London is the last major outbreak of plague in England. Um, this occurs at the tail end of what is known now as the Second Plague Pandemic, which began with the Black Death of the late 1340s and early 1350s. And the second one is in the 12th? I'm sorry, the first one is in the 12th century? No, the first one is a lot earlier. The first one is the Plague of uh, Justinian, uh, which occurs in the Byzantine oh. Empire. So it had been several centuries before that. Um, and then the third plague pandemic actually happens in the late 19th century. Oh, okay. I didn't know that that was plague. A <laughs> lot, lot of plague. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah. So, <laughs> the, a lot of plague. Yeah. Um, yep. And, yeah, and and so just you know, the, to to be clear, the 1665 plague is not nearly on the scale of the Black Death. Um, the Black Death covered most of Europe and Asia, and may have killed anywhere from like a third to upper estimates or two thirds of Europe's population. Um, and as you can imagine, just massive social consequences. Like some cities didn't recover their population for centuries. Like I think Florence didn't reach its pre-plague uh, peak until the 1800s. Um, yeah, I mean, yeah, crazy. Um, and you know, like, so one of the things it did, uh, is it produced a, a huge labor shortage that radically upended the feudal system and may have actually paved the way for the emergence of capital. So I oh, guess yeah. <laughs> then there is a happy there, ending, but, I guess. Oh boy. <laughs> <laughs> Feudalism's bad, but capital is uh, not really. It's also bad. bad. Yeah. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> I mean, Mark's, Mark says there are stages we have to go through, right? But, uh, That's true. But yeah, so the, 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 it is, the 1665 Great Plague is much less severe, but it still probably killed like 100,000 people in London, which is, yeah. And uh, yeah, so as I think is fairly well known, today we, we understand the plague is a bacterial infection, one that is most often carried in rats as well as other small, uh, small mammals. 
and it gets transmitted to humans by fleas. So like the flea bites an infected rat and then bites you and you get plague. Um, and it, yeah, it still occurs. Like it is endemic to the Western United States. It causes a few cases each year. Fortunately, it is quite treatable with modern antibiotics, but it is still really nasty. Like if you get it, you need to get diagnosed correctly and get antibiotics, antibiotics fast, or it, it has a very high mortality rate. So Tristan, just to clarify, you're saying don't use the healing crystals on this one. <laughs> don't know. And nor do you really want to go to a doctor that has a beak like attached to a mask like right. that, or who is prescribing mercury. Yeah, you don't want to do that. <laughs> well, you know, you might not want to, but I may, I may because if because the mask, usually they have some essential oils in the beak and they'll pull them out and sort of sell them to you and get you involved in a kind of a, 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 a pyramid shaped business plan. Okay. Yeah, no, that that sounds good. I mean, the other thing you can do is like, if you want to start to join like a religious cult of some kind, you know, maybe, yeah. like, you know, going through the streets, like beating yourself like that, that is effective. I mean, we, you know, so. <laughs> what about those like colloidal, just use colloidal silver on your like gigantic black blisters that break out all over your body yes exactly exactly um if you two think i didn't take a dropper of colloidal silver this morning you're out of your minds <laughs> <laughs> yeah uh, and well actually though this brings me to my the, my next set of cool plague facts uh which is that <laughs> its most common form bubonic plague is so named because of its most recognizable symptom which yeah are these painful black swollen lymph nodes called uh buboes which <laughs> often appear in the groin um, so that's nice. Uh, <laughs> uh, but it, but plague actually has a few different forms, which is part of why it caused such massive epidemics. There's a pneumonic form, which infects the lungs. And when that happens, plague can actually become aerosol and, you know, then transmitted person to person, uh, also via human fleas, which are a thing that I didn't know existed, but yeah. Um, oh my God. so, uh, yeah. So, Again, 17th century hygiene practices. Um, but yeah, so like once it's present in a city and in a human population, you you basically don't need the rat as a vector anymore. And that's part of why it becomes so dangerous. Is it also, one assumes, an STI because you could get it from crabs? Yeah, I would. That's I'm just making it a little worse. Yeah. I'm just trying to think of like, how could it be worse? That's a, yeah. Uh, that sounds right. Yeah. <laughs> that's great. That's great. Just <laughs> many. How how gross? How gross can we make it? I mean, it seems as gross as you could imagine. So so why not add just like one more little uh, treat? Yeah, you can get exactly. it from eating ass. <laughs> <laughs> this is what I'm saying. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, and or Giardia. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, right. But so like Defoe didn't really know any of those kind of like biological level details of how plague works. But, you know, they were kind of starting to figure out contagion and rudimentary epidemiology in the 17th and early 18th centuries, um, certainly more so than in the 14th century when the common theory was basically anti-Semitism. Like, cool. Uh, yeah. Oh. <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> no, I never would have guessed. Well, or, or, and you burn them, yes, and that will definitely work. Anti-Semitism or other uh, just uh, lashing out at anyone that you could label a dangerous uh, heretic. That that, that I can't be. imagine that anti-Muslim sentiment wasn't probably involved here too. I'm I, I'm sure it was. I'm, I I would assume probably misogyny too, and lots of other great things. But it was it, witches. It was Jewish witches. That's right. <laughs> yes. Exactly. 
but okay, so this is for the narrative itself. Um, journal of the Plague Year purports to be the journal of a London saddler uh, named H.F. It is speculated that this reference is Defoe's real life uncle, Henry Foe. Um, and a reminder from our Crusoe episode the family's name is Foe. Defoe added the DE himself to seem fancy. Um, like, cool. It's of the Foes? <laughs> yes, he's a, he, he just wanted to seem a little French, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Only a tiny bit Frenchy. You know what? I don't object to the to the de. I, I object to he should have named himself Defriend, not Defoe. <laughs> oh my god. It's gonna it's we're having a good one today. Uh yeah. I mean I, well, you know What about Defiend? Defiend? <laughs> yeah, the Defiend would have been cool. Uh Defriend, I mean, he does seem like kind of a cranky asshole who was impossible to get along with. So. It would have been, mm, been the literary device of irony. But yes, it would be, <laughs> it, absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you, Cleanth Brooks. I'm so glad you've come to this. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so so HF lives in Aldgate, uh, one of those wonderful British names, um, which is in the eastern part of of the city of London, and you know, the, so the city of London, capital C, um, it, it, that's the boundaries of the old medieval city, which is just like a tiny part, of, like one square mile of the the modern metropolitan London. So the plague starts at the tail end of 1664 when we hear that people are freaking out because they know the plague is in Holland. And as they know with you know centuries of experience at this point, that means like England's going to be next. So uh, in December, two Frenchmen die in the parish of St. Giles in the Fields, uh, <laughs> which is a bit west of Aldgate and also not in any way in the fields. Um <laughs> And uh, no, <laughs> and 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 so generally, actually, yeah, and, like geography is sort of really important to a story. Um, the, the plague like starts on the west side of London and steadily moves east over the course of the year. Um, and over that year, as I said, a hundred thousand people would die in the city, and HF is sort of documenting that sort of rolling catastrophe. Um, so it, some of the details that he's interested in sort of getting down, um, a lot of the journal is about the growing horror of the visitation, which you can hear the religious language and that, that terminology, you know, one of the most famous details has to do with the mass burial pits that churches had to dig because the numbers of dead are far exceeding their capacity, uh, for either standard burials because they didn't have time for that, or just they don't have space in the graveyards. And so the, just to quote a bit of this, uh, really, uh, frightening uh, episode. Um, There was a strict order to prevent people coming to those pits, and that was only to prevent infection. But after some time, that order was more necessary for people that were infected and near their end and delirious also would run to uh, to those pits wrapped in blankets or rugs and throw themselves in and, as they said, bury themselves. I cannot say that the officers suffered any willingly to lie there, but I have heard that in the great pit in Finsbury in the parish of Cripplegate, it lying open then to the fields, for it was not then walled about, came and threw themselves in and expired there before they threw any earth upon them, and that when they came to bury others and found them there, they were quite dead, though not cold. Like, yeah, yikes. Um, so, and, and then we get a few of these kind of sentimentally constructed scenes and, you know, just like kind of the language of the sort of, uh, what would become the sentimental novel. We get like this kind of elaborate depiction of like the grief of this waterman who has to self quarantine away from a sick family, a, a man who's kind of distraught, uh, and just following the burial wagon that contains the bodies of his entire family. And throughout Defoe sprinkles these really creepy details of the city and the plague. Like one thing that I always am struck by, like he's really that weeds are growing in like the busiest streets because there's just like no traffic anymore and stuff. Um, 
so yeah so so that that's a lot of what he's talking about um but like so alongside these depressing or frightening and frankly novelly details um we get a lot of discussions about what is essentially epidemiology and public health so for one thing, Defoe or HF uh, wants to try to figure out what exactly the plague is. You know, how does it spread? Is it a miasma? Is it like bad smells causing it? Uh, is it carried in people's breath? And yeah, like, you know, particularly in the mnemonic form, it actually is. Um, so that's, you know, that's, he's, yeah, he's right. Um, and yeah, so like, as we talked about, you know, in our Crusoe episode, Defoe is a dissenter or, you know, Americans can short, shorthand that as Puritan. They're slightly distinct things, but they're, they both kind of reflect the sort of Calvinist not mainline Church of England tradition. And there's no question that Defoe sees the plague as a divine judgment, uh, and he thinks it abates when God makes it abate. Um, So he says towards the end, uh, those physicians who had the least share of religion in them were obliged to acknowledge that it was all supernatural, that it was extraordinary, and that no account of it could be given. Um, But he kind of contradicts that later because he says in in sort of deist fashion almost that he thinks God acts, quote, by natural causes and that humans can and should figure out how those causes work, um, which is kind of contradicts what he says earlier about the sort of like divine, like in sort of unknowability of it. And so then he spends a lot of time talking about various public health measures and how effective they were. Like he's against quarantining people in their houses or shutting them up, as it was called, because he thinks that this causes panic and basically you trap healthy people with sick people. Um, instead, he thinks that they should have made a lot more designated test houses um, or public facilities. <laughs> yeah, which is a great name. <laughs> like pub- right. public, but they were public facilities where basically you took plague victims and they would get medical care, but they would also be quarantined away from uh, people who weren't infected, um, which actually does sound like, yeah, that would have been that would have been a smarter sort of epidemiological plan. Um, and then, yeah, like as you guys were saying, he talks all about the quacks and astrologers who shut up shop during the plague. Uh, he thinks burning coal is good for it. He tells us he did that all summer, um, but he says it's that not- for your long, for the lung health of the uh, the people of London. Absolutely, and then you know, in the nineteenth and twentieth century, would get so heavy that it caused killer fog. So yeah, right. he did, <laughs> but- This is where we get global warming. It was fucking <laughs> Defoe. It's, it's that fucking deep. Defoe's fault. Yeah. We can lay all of that at his feet for sure. Yeah, it's fucking Defoe's fault. And then, uh, oh yeah, and also uh, he says doctors who thought getting hammered was a good preventative measure uh, all became alcoholics. So he thinks that that wasn't wise. (laughs) 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 Didn't the WHO just tell us not to drink so much? Uh, Yeah, I think so. But you know, it's also like um, people are shut in their houses (laughs) for weeks and weeks and weeks. Like, (laughs) thank uh, you for the helpful recommendation. We're on edge. Yeah, it's, yes, I'll, I, I will. I will abstain while the fucking world is collapsing around me. Sure, um, but uh, yeah, and, and so okay. The, the last thing I wanted to touch on um, is the degree to which Defoe wants you to think of this as historiography. Um, so beyond the plague, in part, I think what he's doing is capturing a London that no longer existed in 1722, and in many ways, like just a different nation. Like so, one thing that he talks about a few times is how the Great Fire of London, which happened in 1666 completely changed the geography that he's describing. Um, like, yeah, and, and London today, uh, it, it, like London has the post-1666 footprint now, it, like completely leveled like so much of the city. And that's when Christopher Wren like designs like the modern St. Paul's. It, it, it's just, it, yeah, it's like the kind of, that's a transition point between the medieval and the modern city. 
Um, and the journal also uh, appears to conceive of itself as regarding the origins of something like modernity, I think. Um, there's like on the very first page, we have this claim. Um, we had no such thing as printed newspapers in those days to spread rumors and reports of things and to improve them by the invention of men as I have lived to see practice since. <laughs> so on the one hand, he's plunging into the boring and terrifying details of the weekly bills of mortality um, and kind of setting the record straight. But but he's also registering social changes and technological innovations, like which he sees as both good and bad, um, and envisioning a different time in a way that really does seem to look forward to what became the historical novel, in, at least in, in English. Yeah, them charts are really doing it for me. <laughs> What's that? Those charts are really, uh, really killing <laughs> yeah. it. Yeah, I know. It's... Uh... Well, it's weird. That's why I say it's not novel. I mean, it is novelty, but then you're like, why am I looking at these tables? It's, it, it's a, like, I think we have to think of it as a hybrid object. Like, I don't think it's yeah. just one genre. Um, and no, part of really has no characters. Like, that's not helpful no. with respect to a novel. No, he doesn't have characters. Um, he he doesn't. It, it it's almost like Gonzo journalism, right? Like, it's uh, oh my god, it, yeah. It like tries to create the the narratorial uh, eye as a character, but only slightly one. But then, like, yeah, I mean, a lot of and, and a lot of what he's talking about, it's like you know the eyewitness accounts. It's like you know, like Sam, Samuel Pepys, like he he wrote a lot about uh, he who also lived through the plague. He he wrote um, you know in his journal a lot about it. So he he's just he's kind of like collating all this existing historical material, and then he's using like a kind of fictional techniques to make it like into some kind of coherent object, I guess. That's a, that's, it, it's like, I mean, sort, it's sort of a coherent object. It is a coherent yeah, object. I mean, that's, yeah. The, the charts, the, gra- there's no graphs. I don't know why I keep fucking saying graphs, but the <laughs> tables are something else. They're, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I didn't want to tell you this ahead of time, but you can actually skip right over them. You don't even have to read them at all. You can just sort of register them and turn the page. Yeah. It's like he manages both to be a science and industry dude of his modern age, and he's also like a grouchy, it's all fake news and the millennials won't get off a of Snapchat. <laughs> oh, yeah, for sure. No, I mean, that, and that, and that's Defoe, right? Like, I mean, he's like... He want, I mean, he he really wants to be like an innovator and a full participant in like the modern world. But he's like, he's mad. Yeah, he's like constantly mad at everyone, which is like, and that's one reason I don't know. Like, there's there's always like kind of a Swiftian element to Defoe. Like, I, like a lot of people don't don't think Defoe's like they they think that he's basically like a fucking boring hard on who <laughs> like everything he says is meant it completely literally. Like, he has no ironic capacity whatsoever. And I think he's taking a piss all the fucking time. I just, I don't, I, I, I see like insincerity characterizing so many of his novels, but. Oh, um, I, I think that too. I just think that it's not like funny. I mean, occasionally it's funny in a really, like, really grim way, but it's more no. that I see like, why are you dumb dums doing all this stuff? Right? Like, so anything anybody does is like, I can't believe you would go to a fake doctor. I can't believe you would take your servants and go to the woods or whatever. Like, I can't believe you would do all this dumb shit. And it's just like, yeah, it's, it's just, it's the highest levels of grouchiness, maybe even Swiftian. Yeah. 
Yeah. And as uh, Swift, I, I know I said this is a detail before, but I love uh, Swift hated Defoe. They were kind of very opposite politically. Nice. But uh, Defoe got Defoe was sentenced to stand at the pillory for this satirical tract he wrote called The Shortest Way with the Setters. And Swift uh, would, for that point, only refer to him as that fellow who is pilloried. I have forgot his name. <laughs> <laughs> what yeah. a shit. I mean, I expect nothing less of um, Donovan Swift. That seems very much his deal. But sorry, what they did say that I, I'll just say a few things about Defoe himself. Um, but the charts, like they are very boring. They are also terrified, right? Like, so I was just looking. Oh yeah, once you get to the big numbers, it's like holy fucking shit. So here's just one very small example. Uh, the first chart he gives us, it's the bills of mortality from December 27th uh, to January 3rd of 1665. St. Giles uh, Parish records 16 deaths. For the week of uh, the 25th of July to the 1st of August, St. Giles records 540 deaths. Yeah. Like, so Jesus Christ, you know, like. And that's when you feel these historical echoes of like, wait a second. Yeah. It's almost like it's exponential. Yes, indeed. Yeah. So, yeah. May I ask a factual question? Okay. So, you know how Defoe is like, I'm uh, too grouchy to live, uh, too smart to die in this whole thing? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Was that – I can't tell if he is extremely smart or he horseshoes around from being so dumb. <laughs> yeah. It's – it was conceivable to me that this I know everything guy posturing about a lot of the quackery was mm-hmm. him in retrospect knowing what didn't work and then inserting himself back into the narrative as if from huh. a time machine so he can be the smart guy in the past. Like, I do think that he is quite smart. <laughs> like, but I also think that he is just like so fucking verbose and prolific that like if you take the smartest person in the world and just let them ramble, they're going to say a lot of dumb shit that you're going to have to excavate the smart <laughs> yeah, stuff. Sure. Love. And I see Defoe very much as that guy. Like, I, I mean, so one of the first things he wrote, um, this, this bonkers thing called the essay on projects from 1697. <laughs> it's like, it's like, it's, he's like, all right, shitheads, I'm going to tell you how to fix the fucking nation. I'm going to tell you what insurance is and how you do it. I'm going to tell you how to make the highway system. And like, some of it is like, you know, like, okay, yeah, actually this does look like how a modern system would be. But some of it is just like, why are you mad at this completely random <laughs> like, b- b- business person, you know? Yeah. So, anyway, but- I um, love that. I want to read fucking essay on projects. It's just so Harvard Business Review. No, it is. It is. To be it's, mad at projects. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, Nobody knows how to do a project uh, around here. Let me manage you. It, but yeah, no. I, it's, yeah, I'll, I'll just say a couple quick things about Defoe, um, and yeah, we'll plunge more deeply into the the journal itself. Um, but yeah, like I love his absolutely bonkers biography, um, and it is one that places him at the beginnings of a ton of social and historical transformations. He was actually alive during the Great Plague. He was he was five. Uh, he, he was born in 1660 and died in 1731. So a fairly long life by 17th and 18th century standards. Um, his, he's born into a pe- uh, petty bourgeois family in London. Um, and he kind of set himself up in trade for the first few decades of his life. He went bankrupt spectacularly in the 1690s, <laughs> which is part of what he, t- that, that's when he turned to writing. He's like, all right, fuck it. I've got like thousands of pounds of debt. I can't do the, the merchant thing anymore. 
And so he was a Whig, uh, which again is like the proto-liberal political party and the party of early capital. His family were Puritans, and that did have a big impact on Defoe's thinking. I tend to be fairly skeptical of how much of an impact, for instance, because like you know, a lot of his novels really do seem to want to uh, stay with their their uh, don't they don't really want to stay stay with their religious themes, right? Like he, um, you know, he 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 seems much more into people fucking and stealing and fail sunning and having a good time than in the the religious narrative. Um, although, Katie, I, I think you have really good thoughts about this. Um, but it did, it absolutely, the Puritan thing absolutely influenced his politics and vice versa, and probably the form of his writing. So a lot of critics have talked about how Robinson Crusoe and like Maul Flanders follow the form of the Puritan spiritual biography, uh, which is this genre of a kind of like a lifelong process of confession and confession and confession as a way of looking for signs of providence in your own life. Um, but also that's kind of fixed on the always already fallenness of humanity. And yeah, uh, so just you know, speaking Defoe in the novel, uh, my dude didn't get into that until he was fifty nine. Um, you know, again, Crusoe comes out in seventeen nineteen, and basically all of the works that Defoe is popular for today, or you know, famous for today, Crusoe, Mall Flanders, Roxana, uh, and Journal of the Plague Year come out over the next decade. Um, and and I, again, I do want to kind of want think about how the journal fits into that mix because um, it's not clear to me that it follows. a spiritual biography pattern at all. Like, as you guys said, there's no characters here and, and, you know, not that there are clear answers either for us today, or even if we were to do a deep dive into Defoe's scholarship, but I'm curious as to why he wanted to tell the plague story when he did. Um, so like there's some thought that, you know, 1665 was the last major outbreak. No one in the 18th century knew that that was the last outbreak. Like it still could come back. And, you know, by the 1720s, people are starting to think, oh, shit, we're overdue. Maybe, maybe the plague is going to come back. Um, and, uh, and also like, so Puritans long viewed both the plague and the great fire the following year as a judgment on the absolutist house of Stuart. Um, like Charles II had, had taken the throne back in, in 1660. That's such a delightfully like uh, putting I don't know, like begging the question, right? So, so like, oh, what, what, what's, what's Mister God mad at? Oh, I bet it's, a, <laughs> I bet it's the Stuarts. I bet it's Charles the First or whoever the fuck it was. Charles hey, the don't talk about yeah, Stuart. it was Charles. Yeah, Charles the Second. Yeah, Charles, Charles the Charles, Charles One was uh was was killed in uh, in in forty nine. So okay, so like that's just a funny, funny, you know version of like oh i wonder what this is i guess it's that not that you know any number of of like i guess we could make the river run in the other direction and that would trick (laughs) satan into not flanking us no i know i know Um, can't trick satan he's untrickable (laughs) yeah but but yeah, and I I yeah that I'll I'll close there to say that like I I do think sort of like you know that there there is a degree to which this is thinking about kind of political transformation in addition to like illness and and managing that that I think is is interesting and goes to how this might fit into the historical novel tradition. But I I, I will end I will end there. Well, that's still I mean it gives us a ton. But Katie, will you just kick us off in terms of like this the religious aspects of this, which is which is like at some points really hilariously stupid, and then at some points really I don't know it's important. So you talk. I don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> I love how I love how I'm like the belt buckle hat consultant who gets called in for uh for for <laughs> <laughs> for this terrible shit. So, the- but we may not talk about like the beautiful scene in which like all these ladies are breaking into a millinery and stealing hats, and <laughs> HF is like, "Go put those back." Those are my brother's hats. 
Okay, so like one way to actually start that is to talk about the thing that Megan, you were saying about the like, hmm, stroking your chin and saying, well, 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 I wonder who God's mad at. I bet it's the same person that (laughs) I'm mad at. (laughs) That's essentially how religion functions in the pettier moments of this, I think. It's also one of the points of contention between him and his brother. So they both do this thing that I like to call God logic, as a, which is as distinguished from religion. So, oh, you mean I would trust God with my safety and my health? <laughs> yeah, he's like, well, because they do this thing where it's like, an, yeah, he's like, well, I, okay, so I can stay because I trust God. And his brother is like, well, God gave you legs to walk away. So isn't using your legs to walk away, trusting God? Boom, roasted. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. So that's pretty much how religion like so there's that there's that one element of it. And then just to step back a little bit to Tristan, you were talking earlier about how being a dissenter is sort of almost uh it's in the neighborhood of of being Puritan. And so that pettiness also bumps up against providence like they're sort of one and the same and so reading providence and experiencing it are both important so like reading writing experience are three layers that you sort of have to do to understand Mm -hmm. yourself if you're a puritan you have to like search for the signs beneath the surface and all the rest so you got to do the where's waldo shit uh to find god's plan (laughs) Mm-hmm. So, like, we can turn to one of the pissed moments, I think, okay. which is one that, the so the last one, uh, he's lamenting that people are unprepared for the plague. And he says, I reflected upon the unprovided condition that the whole body of the people were in at the first coming of this calamity upon them, and how it was for want of timely entering into measures and managements as well public as private, that all the confusions that followed were brought upon us and that such a prodigious number of people sank in that disaster, which if proper steps had been taken, might, providence concurring, have been avoided, and which, if posterity think fit, they may take a caution and warning from. It's confusing, right? I mean, like, the tension is baked into the, is baked into the response to the plague or the response to anything if you're religious at the time. Uh, cause, but what does this mean? Like, I'm not. I I know that that I just bragged a lot about. Like, I'm good at 18th century prose. But that thing that you just read makes it sound like, well, as long as God, as long as you believe in God, you'll like set up enough in- infrastructure and like make sure your house has open windows or whatever to make the plague not as bad like the 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 causal relationships there are confusing to me like it seems as though he's saying something about like you know human beings get your shit together but then he's like oh if the proper steps had been taken then god would be happy well your question is exactly like the whole problem because if we're living in a predestined universe then should there, there should be no counterfactuals like this right right so Right. No Monday morning quarterbacking in uh in in the religious game of pigskin throw. I don't. I can't do sports. <laughs> right. 
Yeah. Well, and I mean, that, <laughs> this, this is also to me always the sort of like logical incoherence of sort of Calvinism, right? But, but, um, if you believe good, bad things won't happen to you, except bad things are already going to happen to you. So you better believe anyway. Well, and also that like it doesn't like, okay, so just accepting that the universe is like predestined and so that your individual intention doesn't like can't direct anything. But then like, so if you're just like, well, fuck it, I'm not, I'm, I'm not not going to do anything that i mean like yeah like well but then like well of course all right you're not going to make any money you'll like starve to death or whatever but then like you know there's no way that to say like well okay but that's because you were predestined for that to happen whereas like if you become like the successful like merchant or whatever you were predestined for that to, you know what i mean so it's like Anyway, I, I probably do it a very like not good justice to Calvinism. But. Well, it's it's partially because everybody has no matter what everything and everyone has a place under that scheme. But what's sort of important is that the justification leads to sanctification is the thing, and I'll say what that means because it doesn't mean anything to just in and of itself. <laughs> but it's like okay, so you have to. If you are behaving properly, it's a good it's a good sign you're saved. And but behaving properly doesn't lead to salvation. But we mm. still have to be concerned about stuff like fucking society. So you have to do mm. the disciplinary stuff to make to to ensure that you live in a godly society. So the the tension is that the individual is supposed to be looking for signs all the time and everything. And you're also supposed to be like maintaining some sort of social structure that's modeled after the church. Like the little little commonwealths are supposed to be in a circle from the home to the the universe. So if you kept enough like uh, – what he's saying is like if you kept enough Lysol and toilet paper and sacks of bread flour in your home and in whatever we want to think of that as being at the institutional level, Mm -hmm. then this – would have been either diminished or not happened at all because what you're doing is like ordering you're putting in order the the thing that makes a godly society yes and then also that like the fact your fact of not having done all this preparation and not having structured society right that that like then becomes its own justification for god's punishment right like so yeah and and that and and um yeah and well and that also gets to that like the sort of weirdness of his claim about like this is like the the root cause is supernatural and that like yes like god caused the plague but the mechanism of the plague itself falls fully within the natural it's like we can figure out what this is we can figure out how to manage it right like if god wants us to but that management has to be both scientific and godly right like there's you can't just be like i'm gonna throw antibiotics there's, at there's also no distinction between science and religion if you're like a if you're like an 18th century puritan my read on defoe has always been that like he, theologically, he he very he he goes from being like you know I mean he wrote like sort of like religious stuff and like the like there's a sequel to Robinson Crusoe called like Serious Reflections of the Life of Robinson Crusoe with his vision of the angelic world, which is this <laughs> bonkers ass like sort of theological meditation. But like so, there are times when he's like really into that, and other times when I don't think he gives a fuck at all. Um, and like you know for like something that I've I know I've said on the show before, like Roxana, which is about you know a courtesan, a sex worker. 
she gets really successful has a ton of fun and then there are like three fucking sentences at the end they're like but she sure did get her come up and it's like yeah you're not being serious right now <laughs> right. Like, if she didn't get it for these last 400 pages then why do you think it's gonna happen now exactly but so i think that like a lot of the time it's less like the content of the theology that calvinism and puritanism gives to foe and more like an epistemological outlook on the world right like it gives him a narrative structure and it gives him an interest in signs and interpretation that i do like i think that there's a direct connection there even if like what he's actually saying about like puritan theology like sometimes he's serious and sometimes i think it's like so fucking far from anything he cares about oh so this am i so somebody help me out here does this mean that like the work that he's doing to discern like oh maybe it's the breath maybe it's the miasma maybe it's like uh all these things that what he's doing is he's like doing a kind of religious interpretation and i know that i'm i'm still like distinguishing between science and religion which is against the rules (laughs) but what i'm trying to do is like pull them closer together in my own thinking yeah so you can think about both of them as a method and a practice and a means of producing knowledge, not as like a, a category of understanding something that's in any way distinct from other stuff. Like it's so you're you're totally right that like the act of the act of doing the writing and the interpreting is not in fact just like wanking off. It's actually mm-hmm. a part. It's actually to discern God's plan, and not only that, but by publishing a book then he gives you like a how-to guide to figure out the meaning of the plague for later because we don't know like we just know from the it's not stupid to think it might come back tomorrow because it's been coming back for 200 years yeah Yeah. no yeah exactly 300 something bonkers right like there's no reason to think that tomorrow you're going to be fine no true yeah that's it's that's absolutely yeah. It's so do another religion, be Mormon, and fill your house up with five years of of support uh, <laughs> or whatever. Yeah. Well, and, 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 yeah, and, and I mean, like scientific details themselves as signs, right? Like he he reference he says at one point, like, oh, there's a doctor that thinks that maybe like it's caused by little dragons that like like so he's like germs, <laughs> and he's like right. and he's like, but we didn't have a microscope, but they did, meaning like they did not have a microscope there to do right. this, but like that th- this is this is a thought, um, and like there like there was a comet that appeared, but of course like this is right around the era when like you know Edmund Halley is like discovery like what a comet is and stuff, so it's like. They're no. They're starting to learn what these natural events are, but that doesn't mean that the sort of theological content of them, or, or just like that kind of sign interpretation, is no longer something they think is like deeply essential. So there's two ways to read the. You know, you figure out the mechanism behind. You figure out what a comet is, a ball of shit, or whatever that, that hurtles mm-hmm. through the sky. <laughs> and when you see how it works, you can think, "Oh, uh, science explains everything," or you can think look how cool God is and all the neato stuff we got here and all the signs and things to read and all the fun boils to look at and and discern the meaning of. <laughs> but it's not so it is different though in the sense that like the the work of doing it, the method is could be the microscope to see what the godly cons- could you know, how it's put construction of the bacterium or whatever, but also the like labor of trying to figure out how like you can't you can't doctor pimple popper the buboes because it's too painful or whatever. And then, but that's of is that of the same significance as like interpreting a comet? They're both the language that God talks to people in. 
Okay. So like mm-hmm. in that way, yes. But is that like a, I took the Jesus pill answer. You know what I mean? <laughs> is that a real fit? Is that, does that make sense? It does make sense. It's more that I feel like I'm, I'm swimming through mud a little bit as the sort of like person who knows less about the dissenters in, and so I'm just like, so so what is considered a reading of divine providence? And I know that the answer is everything, mm-hmm. but like what what is the sort of like daily practice of of doing it? And I think that's part of what this book is like telling you is that like in the midst of this crisis that what you should be doing is like you can't account for it. So right. you have to do this like interpretive stuff that gets you closer. Yeah. Yes. And you have so I'll do the I'll do the data analytics shit again. The yeah. journal is your data, and then you and it's also where you do your analysis. Um, right. Yeah. yeah. No. Definitely. And, well, and 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 I also think like I mean one reason why that that the sort of like the setters are I, I think so uh, like a lot of, of academics or you know thinking about the origins of modernity or uh, have been into them for a long time is you sort of see like this interesting inflection point where you do see a sort of like a pre-modern kind of uh, uh, epistemology and ontology and like a modern one. Right. Mm-hmm. Like there, like it is, it is kind of simultaneously pointing in two directions. And, and like, and I don't think in a way that like necessarily has to lead to what became modernity, but I think that you can see like modernity very much emerging within that. It fits together. It fits together real nice to have, uh, you know, it, it fits with a novel too, because if what you're partially meant to be doing is looking at your life in this really intense way and not only for signs, but introspection, you get something like mm-hmm. it lends itself really well to, novelistic storytelling but also megan i do want to say it's not you it's this it (laughs) (laughs) okay you're not like missing the key to anything it there is no it is like attention that you're pointing to you're absolutely right that's that's totally there it's not like oh if you just divide by two it all makes sense like it's just (laughs) no no and i'm not trying to like harp on this religion in particular like oh the dissenters got it wrong and everybody else got it right it's just like that it's so infused into the book that it's like i have to get i have to be a i have to be an attuned reader to do Mm. a good job with this book (laughs) yeah i mean well i can't just be like well maybe i can but i feel like a different version of a reader would see this and just be like, this is just grueling and sad and fucked. Well, I mean, like, I think it, I think it sort of helps to like come up with like this, you know, an account, like a broad account of what it is. But I also think that like you can, as sort of a general reader who's, you know, not, not interested or hasn't, you know, like, and also if you're not an academic doing this kind of work, why would you read all up on the dissenters? But like, (laughs) he's asking questions that are, are like, uh, you know, so, I mean, another aspect of this and, you know, Katie, you talked about how like, you know, this, the sort of like well-ordered society and that as, as a Puritan or as a dissenter, you should be focused on. I mean, I do think the things that he, like the, the social questions he's asking um you don't really have to i mean i think they really go to that religious lens but i also think that like they stand on their own right um like like you know just how we like figure social class in the city like he's really interested in what that means like who gets like fucked over the most because of the plague like the measures that are taken in, in place to like kind of caring for the poor um and like that does go back to the theology certainly but i also think like that stands as like you know a very recognizable sort of public policy question question in its own right and political question in its own right Mm. yeah it's all it's all it's all there it all flows in one river of shit and plague (laughs) 
<laughs> if I can jump back into this like question of religion and poverty, like, so a question that I might ask both of you is like, there's this part where he talks about how like the greatest part of the poor who lived formerly by their labor lived now on charity. Mm-hmm. And so there's this dynamic of like impoverishment that is like that the Christian charity comes in as like a huge part of this. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so what is the historical like where where we I don't want to say like where are the institutions? Where is the <laughs> state here? But it is an interesting and complicated institution that is like the church that keeps poor people from starving. I think the kind of like our uh, popular imagination around the urban poor in sort of like imperial London um, largely comes out of Victorian ideology, right? Um, and it's it's stuff we see Dickens critiquing in a lot of ways, but also, you know, I, I, you know, as in kind of liberal fashion, sort of like unwittingly participating in is oh, like yeah. the, the like the pathologization of the poor uh, or or some ideology of like the poor are poor because they're sick in some way or like they're aberrant. Um, but like the, one really interesting thing about this is like. Like this predates by at least a hundred years that sort of ideological development. Um, and while Defoe is part of like emerging capital, like he hasn't gotten there yet um, to that disgusting aspect of capitalist ideology. He is more in this. So one thing. So okay. So like one thing that happened. I think we might have talked about this on a previous show. But in like the in a, the eighteen thirties, there is this poor law reform called the New Poor Law, and there's some kind of associated acts of Parliament with that that like completely like did away with this old Elizabethan system of caring for the poor, um, which that old system basically said, if there is a poor person, an indigent person who is resident in your parish, it is like incumbent on the church to provide for them. Um, And like the kind of assumption there is that poverty is not like your fault per se, but it's like, and it, but it's also not something that you can correct as a society. It's more like an endemic condition of the social. And if there are poor people, the church, like the local parish, must provide for them. Um, in the 1830s, that gets completely scrapped. The institute, the workhouse system, which is focused on reforming the poor, and like you're you're poor because you're a bad person, and we're going to like you know like discipline what it, like the alcoholism or you know like the the the, the laziness or all this disgusting shit that they would you know, like attributed to like poverty out of you. Um, that's not the world Defoe's in. And I do think like Defoe legit, I mean, he says some shitty things about the poor, like they're kind of hysterical or like they're the most, they're like the, the, the most subject to like the kind of charlatans. But like, he also does seem to think like, it's like these people's like, you know, employers fuck off to the countryside, leave them there with no income. And that's fucked up. And he's kind of like, yeah, what do we do? Like how, um, and and he actually like, you know, he, he wants, like, he wants to take, uh, um, to task like the London authorities in a lot of ways, but he kind of feels like that they that this was one area where they kind of like were aware and did a good job and you know to the extent they could of like providing relief. But um, yeah, anyway, I think it's just interesting because like it's a moment before we get that kind of Victorian ideology that so characterizes a lot of subsequent history. Right, and that even that sentence is like they they had been making their way by their labor, and now they just don't like now they're fucked because. That's where their empl- like their employment is gone, and so, um, and had there not been prodigious sums of money given by charitable, well-minded Christians, the city could never have subsisted. So there's this still like it's not the notion of noblesse oblige totally, but it mm. is this 
this idea that it's like a common social good for the poor yeah. not to like they're still dying in the fucking streets because that's where we are historically but it's not as callous as like well they die in the streets because they're like bad at bad at raising capital or whatever no it's 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 not like a social disease it's like a, this is this is part of the social space and we have to we have to you know we have to account for it. We have to do something for it. There is also a difference between like this is this is our poor guy and this is somebody else's poor guy who's come yeah. into our area. So we're responsible for the body of our for the for the the body of citizens in our area. Yeah. And, and right. Yeah, and that is actually that is a failing of the sort of Elizabethan laws that it was like they it was it only applied to like resident poor in the parish, and so there was a lot of like you know like yeah a poor person who would like kind of show up. It's like no leave, like we don't want to deal with you. And he does he does like reference that a few points, like parishes like not wanting to deal with refugees, particularly poor refugees from the plague. Right, because people are always. Like that's one of the funny or interesting sort of like public health elements of this is that people like people aren't supposed to go out on the streets, but people are also we know that like for the most part, rich people like fuck off to their country houses or whatever, mm -hmm. but they can't get out very fast either. Like it, it's there's all these sort of wacky things that people do to try and get out and they rarely work. Mm -hmm. Yeah, And there's one of my favorite things that's actually kind of funny to me is that there's this system of watchmen. When uh, and so diligently, the watchmen show up every day and every night, and they change shifts and they work really hard to make sure that people don't leave their houses. And everybody leaves their houses from like their fucking back window. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. It doesn't yeah. work at all. But they still show up. And he says that, like, yeah, I mean, this is a terrible job. But because people were out of work, there were there was always a, a you know a, enough people willing to do it. Um, but nurses too is another one of his. You know, that's a category of job that's like so terrible but yeah yeah somebody's gotta do it i guess i don't know if you guys caught the insane work hours of that they're like it was a shift of two but it wasn't 12 hour shifts the day watchman was from 6 a.m to 10 at night and the night watchman was from 10 at night to 6 a.m <laughs> what the oh fuck yeah, like a 16 hour to an eight hour shift like i don't know if oh. defoe's just wrong about that or if it's like okay I'm like sure not that sounds like a normal ass <laughs> <laughs> number of hours. also like why would you stay awake if people you know what i'm saying yeah. like, oh, I'm doing a good job. no exactly like how can you blame them for getting taken in by somebody who like puts the points to their shirt and says like oh you got some on there and then doinks their nose and runs out and spreads <laughs> the plague everywhere yeah <laughs> exactly i mean and i always i also think of like this is uh something that the narrator says which he's like uh well you know Thank God I could stay inside and I bought all this, you know, I bought all this cheese and I mm -hmm. I bought all this flour and shit, but I kept sending my servants out. Yeah, mm -hmm. no, there. Yeah. And yeah. And, 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 and which does also get to how like space is sort of like class inflected and, and very political in this. Like when he's describing these interior spaces, a lot of times, which like horrible things are happening, like whole families die. But like that idea that like, yeah, you would have some degree of like privacy, the ability to kind of die like a low or be sick alone. Like he's talking about like largely the petty bourgeoisie and the bourgeoisie not the masses of urban poor who we know are present. Like, I mean, he tells us that, but we just, we only see them sporadically or we see them in that kind of servant relationship where they're like, they're, 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 they're basically recruited to enable other people to have this kind of private space of like 
sickness and, and well, you know. we see them as bodies meaning what and what i mean there is like we see them as counts we see them as like numbers yeah so yeah. we see them as like a as a mass so that's there is a version of seeing the poor but it's like it's not it's always outside so it's like these people die in the streets and so we have like way we have a different they're visible in a different way but also they are available as like a number mm-hmm. yeah and yeah. that's obviously like super fucked but that's his accounting yeah they're like sm- but they're they're also like in that way so here's what fries my cheese about the whole thing they there's like there's no there's no distinction made directly between the people who are poor because of the plague and people who were poor and were victims of the plague. And so, mm-hmm. I mean, there there is in that he says, uh, you know, these rich assholes fucked off and then everyone was screwed. But it's also unclear, for instance, uh, Tristan, the guy you mentioned who's in the boat, who's like, I had to get three gold mm-hmm. coins to give to my wife and then she yeah. was like thank you to god not you um <laughs> yeah right thank god that we provided this thing and then is this the guy who had to like fuck off from his family because they were all sick and he was trying to like stay yes. alive yep yep and he was giving the money back and uh so it's like these people are doing stuff that's you know they're going around trying to collect money and just you know being poor in public which is apparently a big no no cuz you'll wind up in a pit Mm-hmm. And it's ne- but it's not clear uh, who's who, and also the rich and poor. This, this is like uh, this is I feel like a tenth grader, but this is the thing that that the illness doesn't in fact discriminate, but yet it does. Like the actual thing itself right, doesn't, totally. but the but the society does. I can't even believe I'm yeah. saying this, but that's that's kind of yeah. where but we are. See, like the bourgeoisie doing stuff that's like more shocking than it would be if it had been done by the poor, right? So there's, like, women throwing themselves out of windows and shit. Mm -hmm. And so it's, like, bourgeois behavior has been, like, completely wiped of what we think of as being its, like, civility. Yeah. Well, and and I also, like... And and this this also too I think opens up the <clears throat> genre question that I know we wanted to spend at least a little bit of time in. In that like so the the big thing that for I think like all three of us were like yeah this isn't really novel like you don't have those kind of individual characters. I, I mean I think that like one thing like we see like with you know the historical novel like with Scott right is is that like thinking about like the individual admit the historical event. But here it is like, and, and yeah, it's like the, the like the, the bourgeoisie like there there's like these gestures towards like the kind of space that would allow you to be an individual, that kind of privacy and things like that, right? But Megan, what you're saying is that like nonetheless, we still like it, it can't stay there. Like we like you know it, it it wants to get into a private space, but ultimately what it sees is like yeah these 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 uh, you know people are like throwing themselves out of windows, like the, the the like it can never maintain that like separation between like a private psychology and the public event that is happening everywhere to everyone right so this like the pestilence sets up the sort of permeability of spheres so what mm-hmm. we thought of to be is like constant uh or maybe so maybe i mean something slightly different which is like oh we actually think of these things as being naturalized and therefore constant but they're like obviously there's a certain in- there's some intransigence mm-hmm. about inequality but mm-hmm. that doesn't mean that it's that it isn't slippery sometimes. 
Yeah. Yeah. It's like, it's especially hard in this because you find, there's the one part where this uh, family's, I think somebody who works for them, this young woman gets sick or maybe it's the nurse. I can't remember because no one's really uh, available as a character, like you said. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And they're like, oh, well, what we'll do is we'll stick her in the tower. Uh, we'll figure it out later. And then they do the – they put on a glasses, nose, mustache disguise and, like, <laughs> run away or whatever. Um, yeah. But it's this thing where, like, everyone is sort of indiscriminately afraid of the disease, but they're also particularly afraid of getting it from someone they don't give a fuck about. Oh, for sure. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's really bad when it – it, that's partly why he's like, I sent my servants out, and I think the the sense there is like he's not sure they'll bring it back. Although we know that that's a potential risk, but that like if they die, it's not actually the end of the world. It's that if they bring it back, right? Yeah. yeah. Although there, he's so like he gets so many things surprisingly right about transmission, but then he gets some things like very wrong. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, no, and and is I I am still like how the degree to which he got stuff right, and, and I mean again, I mean I think the fact that this he's looking at this like sixty years removed, compiling from a lot of historical documents, so he's able to like sort of come up with a theory that I don't know if like in sixteen sixty five as this was happening would have been as accessible to people, but it is still kind of impressive to me that like not knowing what the fuck a germ is like. He, right. like you know, so. And he would still be like, don't breathe on people and probably quarantine. Yeah. <laughs> little tiny dragons is not a bad guess. No, it's not. It's not. Turns out. The one thing I would love to address as we wrap up, and it's very appropriate for the ending, is the mm. fucking way he ends it. It is it is so funny to me. <laughs> do, do you do you want me to, do you want me to, to, to read that final poem or, or do you want to read it? To, uh, uh, oh, no. P- please read it for us because it's uh, right. it's just incredible let me find the beginning of okay yes i'll I'll start i I will start at a semicolon because i'm not the it's an 18th century sentence it's pages long um oh yeah i see where you're going now okay go ahead i shall conclude the account of this calamitous year therefore with a coarse but sincere stance of my own which placed at the end of my ordinary memorandums the same year they were written a dreadful plague in london was in the year 65 which swept a hundred thousand souls away Yet I alive, HF. It's like, there once was a man from Nantucket. <laughs> there's, there's, there once was a man from Nantucket, but there's also like a L- LMFAO owned quality to it. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> I told you, motherfuckers, that if I believed enough, I would live. Yeah. <laughs> I, I also have a sort of engraving of like a triumphant eagle on a uterus at the end of mine. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It just it fucking rocks because because you know he's the god. It's a griffin, I guess, um, but it's it's just awesome. It's the little dragon that causes the <laughs> oh shit. Yeah. Ugh, <laughs> uh, what a what what a mensch this guy is. Not at all, but still. <laughs> um. So, Katie. What 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 hilarity are we doing in the uh, the age of plague? Oh, in the age of plague, uh, everything's funny in the age of plague. It turns out. <laughs> um, okay, so you two you two think you're pretty smart, right? Um, some days, some, some days not. <laughs> school, I would say I'm school smart. Yes, there you go. I'm I'm book smart. <laughs> <laughs> I have no practical skills or knowledge. Um, okay, so you're pretty, pretty smart. So, I couldn't figure out how to operate my own can opener. 
Well, that's hard. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, geez. (laughs) School smart, yes. Yes. Okay. So I I think you're both very, very smart, remarkably intelligent. So smart, I think that you could be old-timey doctors. Mm, Um, Hell yeah. And so I'd like to test that theory here. I think that you'd both look good in a beak. I mm-hmm. I think that you should ride your high horse instead of bitching about them. Um, mm-hmm. And so I just want to play this little game here in sympathy and respect for the tireless individuals in the 17th and 18th centuries who like stuck tubes up people's pee holes and stuck mm-hmm. moss all in their ears to keep the humors inside their brains or whatever else. Mm-hmm. So... And did the uh, Gulliver's Travels of um, if you blow stuff into a dog's butthole, then it'll <laughs> yeah. live forever. Yeah, yeah. Megan, you mm. don't know how how on point that reference is going to turn out to be once we play this game. <laughs> okay, excellent. Um, th- but my my esteemed my esteemed doctors, what I'm going to do now is to provide you with uh, several medical scenarios. And your treatment options. And you'll select one. And at the end, we will use our modern medical eyes to see, you know, how they would fare. Okay. Okay. So, uh, Dr. Drew, Dr. Phil, you two ready? Yeah. Yes. Let's begin. So you see a guy. He's floating in the Thames. He looks somewhat drowned. Luckily, you are a member of the Institution for Affording Immediate Relief to Persons Apparently Dead from Drowning. Which was a real thing. <laughs> okay. Which, which, uh, you get an A or B choice here. What do you do? A, drag him out of the river. Take all his clothes off. And administer a tobacco smoke enema. Yes, that's no. right. Do the classic treatment for drowning where you use an enema to blow smoke up someone's ass, that is where the saying comes from, either manually or with the bellows. Okay. 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 Or tr- manually. Good night. <laughs> <laughs> well, doctrine's hard work. Okay, so again, you see the choice B. You see the drowned guy. And what you do is you just you sorta you sort of yank his tongue. And you pour a bunch of booze down his throat until he coughs. Because what you want there mm. is to is to make sure it hits the larynx and sort of stimulates a cough to to save his life, of course. Well, uh, as a learned physician <laughs> uh, and a, a, a very very learned in the tracks uh, coming back from our Virginia and Carolina colonies. Uh, I have heard that the stinking weed, as it is called, has uh, has, has 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 very good medicinal properties. Uh, I will have my resident uh, apply manually the smoke uh, of the tobacco weed to the anus of, <laughs> of the, of the uh, uh, hopefully not deceased. I I'm going to go with the the other choice because it did not involve me hauling a body all the way out of the water, which sounds physically impossible uh but also because i do believe that whiskey is truly a giver of life <laughs> i respect that okay I, it's it's on brand um yes it is 
Okay. So uh, here's your second question, doctor and doctor. Doctor and PH stands for fake. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, pardon me. I'm sorry. Uh, This is, I need to get back in historical time. Doctor and lady. Um, (laughs) (laughs) It happens to be a doctor, but I don't really believe it. Um, Doctor and witch of some kind, right? (laughs) (laughs) Sorcery. Okay. Um, May I ask you, what is the cause of all human ailments? All human ailments. Mm. Uh, Is it A, miasma? Or, or is it B, constipation? These are real um, things that people thought, doctor people. Not Jews. That's not a <laughs> this is not This a is choice. the enlightened 17th century, Megan. You're thinking of the 16th century. <laughs> uh, so the choices were miasma or constipation? Uh-huh, and those are the only, it's for everything, so you got to make sure you're right. Because you can only treat one. The treatments are different. How do you treat miasma? You'll see. Well, the beak. The beak full of <laughs> herbs. And, uh, which, by the way, I have to say, if, uh, if we're doing face-to-face instruction in the fall, well, guess how I'm teaching class? <laughs> full <laughs> plague doctor option. <laughs> um, I- this is an interesting question because I actually feel like this is asking us, are you an old-timey 17th century doctor or an old-timey 19th century doctor? Mm-hmm. Were I a Victorian, I would be like, enema immediately. It, 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 it's constipation. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, which, incidentally, if you look at like Victorian newspapers, they are full of ads for constipation, which there's theories it's because they ate like so much meat and so little fiber. They're all doing um, keto. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Uh, I'm going to offer like a second point of view, which is all that so that they like had too much opioid products, yes. opium products. Yes. Oh, headache. How about some opium? <laughs> right. So, like, I can't imagine that all meat plus laudanum means like an excellent digestive system. No, okay, I should um, great. <laughs> so, <laughs> <laughs> that laudanum is really keeping you regular. Um, so I, I I will be 17th century and take miasma. Okay, you're not gonna go full butt stuff. I'm disappointed. Yeah, that's true. It's it's just I, I don't know. I'm feel I'm feeling more the beak right now, not the uh, not the Sherlock Holmes or Doctor Watson style doctor. <laughs> oh yeah, that's fair. I'm still gonna stick. I'm gonna go with the same answer that it's miasma. Nobody picked doo doo ass. Okay, well then you're not gonna <laughs> like this next. <laughs> you're not gonna like this next thought exercise, doctors. Oh well. Um. Okay, so. Uh, you're not only a doctor, you have a side hustle. And okay. that's that you're an enema salesperson. Mm. Just go with it. Okay. Okay. And so you have two choices about advertising your product. Okay. One is to tell this story about your product, which is we're, just for the imagination, for the purposes of this game, we'll call it JBL Cascade. And this isn't imaginary. This is actually real. JBL stood for Joy, Beauty, and Life. <laughs> and is this current? Because it sounds completely like a modern day pyramid shaped business opportunity. <laughs> I think it well, pretty much. Well, wait till you hear all the good it does. Uh, it's a large rubber bottle that holds five quarts. A nozzle protrudes out of the center. So the health seeker. <laughs> oh my God. So you could basically, um, so you could just kind of do a hands free, have a hands free experience. Okay. Right. This shit sells right. itself. Um, and you can mm. use it up to four times a week. Golly gee. So, <sighs> so so here's the anecdote that you can tell in the course of your sales. You know, uh, there was a fire at this at this lady's house, and mm. uh 
you know, she went back into her burning home where she raised her children and lived her life, and she saved one thing, only one thing, and it was the JBL Cascade. Okay. It was her butt faucet? Yes. Her her five-quart butt faucet, yeah. (laughs) She left all the pets and took the butt faucet. (laughs) Okay. Good for her. And and keep in mind, these are are real anecdotes. Uh, Okay. Or... You got a vase to sell your your uh, enema. You think that doesn't make sense, but on on it is a man getting somebody's helping him decongest himself, <laughs> and there's an inscription <laughs> on the bottom, and it says, "I am Don Joaquin Hernandez's jar." Through my through intense devotion to my constitution, I find myself on this occasion shamefully syringed at the hands of a serf. <laughs> Goodness! <laughs> which story are you gonna? Which are you gonna pull out the vase, or are you gonna um, you gonna tell this touching story about the woman who saved the one thing she really cared about? I gotta tell the one thing about the woman who saved her butt faucet. <laughs> yeah, the 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 vase. That, that's the, I I don't like this ad copy. I, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> part of it, yeah. But yeah, I I think so. I think so as well. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna go with the the, the touching story of the the butt faucet saved from the conflagration. Hey, hey, for the outro, can I uh, edit the Don Draper telling the story of his upbringing for sales and advertising? Yes. Oh, please, please oh, yeah. do, please yeah, yeah, do. Yeah. But oh, also though, we, uh, you know, again, Great Fire, sixteen sixty six. That that would be a wonderful. Like, think of it as like it's like all over the burning city. The only thing people saved was their butt faucets. <laughs> <laughs> I really thought that it was going to be something about how she like pooped out all the contents of her butt faucet. Yeah, oh, no, it's much it's much sweeter than that. Um, <laughs> okay, so here's your here's your final question, and it determines oh almost everything. Okay. okay, so what you need to do is cure everything, but that's okay. not possible. You say, well. That's where you're wrong, doctor and doctor, Mrs. <laughs> doctor and witch. <laughs> I believe it's medicine woman. <laughs> um, you actually can cure everything, and you because we have dead bodies. I don't know if you've heard. So mm-hmm. you have two choices here. You can go with for your doctoring. Uh, you can sort of okay. So what you do is you. So picture yourself as a German physician, and uh, you decide so good, <laughs> and you say, "Hey, we got a lot of redheads here. Mm. What if I chop them all up? They're dead already. They're corpses, mm. so don't worry. And I and I make a kind of jerky out of them, and then mm. uh, I mush it in wine and 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 myrrh and aloe, and I sort of." I sort of do a do a uh, snap into a slim gym with it, and then it, that's how you cure everything. Mm-hmm. Or, or you get pieces of skull. I'm sure you have these lying around, mm-hmm. and then you distill them and distill them and distill them, uh, and then you just kind of bottoms up, do a shot, 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 
and it cures uh, gout, heart failure, swelling, and epilepsy. Um, mm. But it sort of it cures everything. I mean, it, it maybe mm. you decide. Um, wh- which one do you do? Do you do the kind of Breaking Bad liquor distillery with a human skull, or do you do uh, the jerky? Oh, ginger cannibalism. I think we all knew that I was going to come down on that one. Yeah, I had to go the same way because I like I love the very literal reading of Modest Proposal that is <laughs> oh, part yeah. of that. <laughs> so- <laughs> okay. Um, so this we're 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 done now and this is a really easy one to score because unfortunately with any of your methods everyone dies. <laughs> yep. Okay. Yep. So, yeah. Um, yeah. But I do want to. I do want to shout. Pure Quicksilver, right in the vein. <laughs> it's it's invigorating and enlivening. Uh, the, these stories mostly came from this book called Quackery by Lydia Kang and Nate Peterson. Um. Well, Doctor, I award you both the Doctor Oz Award for medical excellence. Honored. <laughs> <laughs> honored. Hooray. We're doctors for real. Um, in any event, this has been Better Than Dead. You can find me on Twitter at Tussersaurus. You can find Katie on Twitter at Katie Crywo. You can find Tristan on Twitter at TJ Schweiger. You can find the show on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Better Red Pod. And email us at betterredpodcast at gmail.com, but only if it's not to sell us any quack medicines, mountebankery, or to tempt us with myriad of the dark arts. Um, <laughs> No, actually, like, send it all, because that sounds great. (laughs) Uh, Our intro music is Love Bronstein by the Redskins and used with their permission. Our logo was created by Jane Bonsack of JB Design and Content. Please rate, review, subscribe. And next week, we continue our foray into plague literature with not the Decameron, but the Mask of the Red Death. (laughs) And we have S.E. Hinton's beloved The Outsiders on deck after that. So thanks, comrades. A deeper bond with the product. Nostalgia. It's delicate. But potent. Sweetheart. Teddy told me that in Greek, nostalgia literally means the pain from an old wound. It's a twinge in your heart, far more powerful than memory alone. This device isn't a spaceship. It's a time machine. It goes backwards and forwards. takes us to a place where we ache to go again. It's not called the wheel. It's called the carousel. It let's us travel the way a child travels. Round and around back home again. To a place where we 
know we are loved. Good luck at your next meeting.